I'm sure many of you have heard of the great epic of India called the Mahabharata. It concerns the legendary fight between the hosts of light, justice and truth and the hosts of darkness, injustice and falsehood. These principles, striving for supremacy, are embodied in the two hosts of princes, the Kurus and the Pandavas. The destiny lies symbolically in the hands of an emperor who is blind. During the course of the poor parlour, before uh, the actual war breaks out, there is an emissary from the camp of the Pandavas to the emperor. The king has taken an obviously untenable position and the emissary points, tells him point blank at night when he has arrived that what he has to say it will be told in the public the next day. The king is perturbed, calls his own counsellor, his minister, and asks him to say some soothing words. The minister, Vidura is his name, embodied knowledge. He tells him no word that a human mouth could give would soothe him, but to answer his questions, to meet his difficulties, he would summon a divine sage, Sanat Sujata, and the narration goes on. The minister concentrated in yoga and invoked the presence of the divine sage. And the first question that the king asked, is death there or death is not? The answer of Sanat Sujata Rishi was death is and death is not. And what is death? Death, he declares, death is heedlessness, inattention, not to be aware, that is death. When you are not aware, when you are not heedful, you fall from your true nature, that is death. When you are aware, you pick up, you are rising above death. How to be aware? What of what to be aware? To be aware of your divine nature, of the divine truth behind all things, 
How is that knowledge to be gone? How is one to remember and realize one's own true nature, true reality? The sage replies, there are four indispensable steps. Knowledge. Knowledge of what you want to know, realize. The teacher who has to communicate the knowledge, the zeal and the practice, effort, personal effort, to realize this knowledge that has been communicated and time, the instrumentality of time. These are the four essential ingredients of spiritual adventure. Sri Aurobindo recalls this passage in his small but significant book, The Yoga and Its Object. He recalls the same truth in the first chapter of the Synthesis of Yoga, which he has entitled The Four A's. As you are aware, this series on the synthesis appeared simultaneously with the series on life divine in the pages of the Arya now nearly 60 years ago. He gave in life divine the metaphysics, the knowledge of the gospel of divine life. But he was not content with giving the knowledge. He also accompanied it with a series illustrating the method of translating this knowledge into practice. For unless knowledge in the mind is translated in practical terms, made real to the rest of the being, it remains a theory a book knowledge with no consequence, no effective consequence for the rest of the life. Coming back to the subject, the first essential in the situation is knowledge. Knowledge of what? And what is knowledge? science, literature, humanities, are they the knowledge that is spoken of here in one of the old Upanishads? There is a legend that says Narada, the divine singer, once realized that all his proficiency 
in the various 64 subjects or arts, 64 branches of knowledge, systematized knowledge, were not adequate. He prayed and invoked the, the divine sage of which we just spoke, Sanat Kumara, told him, I have read, I have studied, I have acquired proficiency. In all these 64 branches of learning, he narrates them one by one and said, and still I do not know. Would you give me the knowledge by which I may know and the story goes, the divine sage revealed to him the knowledge of the essential principles of existence, the knowledge by which all other knowledge becomes real. In another Upanishad, there is a clear distinction made between the lower knowledge and the higher knowledge. The lower knowledge covers the field covered by most of our sciences and arts. It relates not to the fundamentals of things, but to the processes. All our sciences, All our arts relate to the process, to the way in which things go, things move, things develop. But what the things are, that is not taken. The Upanishad declares that that knowledge which gives you, which gets you to know the fundamental reality of things, the basis of things, by knowing which all is known, yasmin vijnate sarvamidam vijnatam bhavati. That is paravidya, that is high knowledge. So the real knowledge relates to the soul of things, to the basic reality. And that knowledge is not to be got in books, It is a knowledge that reveals itself to the prepared and the equipped mind. One cannot grasp it. One cannot make inroads by one's intellect. But to one who is purified, silent, that knowledge reveals itself, un unveils itself. There, are, there have been great men, great mystics who have been vouchsafed such high knowledge at different times, on different occasions in the history of humanity. And part of the knowledge that they have just received 
they have formulated in terms of intellect so that the human mind could understand something of it could find through them a bridgehead to the deeper knowledge and this formulation of the supreme transcendent knowledge in terms of the human intellect in human language is called in india the shastra the authentic scripture the authentic word a seeker of the divine path such as the integral yoga with which we are concerned now in our study has first to know something of this knowledge what is the basic knowledge that supports and basis this line of yoga is it one textbook one scripture like the veda like the gita like the bible there are so many indeed each one contains a particular presentation of the higher truth suited to the mentality of the age and the persons that section of humanity to which it was addressed so the seeker of integral yoga does not confine himself to one scripture to one text he sees he studies knowledge this knowledge of the reality reality of god of nature of himself wherever it is found wherever it appeals to him he delves into it familiarizes himself with the main concepts with the main fundamentals this is one aspect from the human approach a deeper aspect of the situation is that all this knowledge that can be gathered through books is partial it does not exhaust <coughs> the whole of knowledge there is within each one a seed of knowledge there is embedded in man a spark of divinity and along with the spark of divinity there is also the seed of knowledge of that divinity it is the function of the shastra of the scripture to awaken the heart of the individual to direct the mind of the individual to that center of knowledge in him 
which is lying veiled behind curtains and curtains of ignorance. The individual has to purify himself, to concentrate, to invoke the inner knowledge, to reveal itself. All his understanding, all his study of the written word is a preparation. The written word is a door opening on the word unspoken. Only a small fraction of the totality of knowledge finds expression in verbal terms. This acquired or an entry made in the realm of knowledge and the individual equipped with at least a framework in terms of mind as to the goal that he sets before himself, the long leeway that is still to be made, the preparation that he has to do, the next step is to find the teacher. In all spiritual tradition, the teacher, the guru, as we call in India, occupies a pivotal place. The teacher in the spiritual quest is not an instructor. He is not a director who tells you what to do, who shows you the way to libraries and books, and whose duty to you is done once you are out of the classroom. <coughs> a teacher is regarded in the Indian tradition as somebody more than the father. It is declared in the tantras that the parents give you a human birth, but the teacher gives you a birth in the spirit of God. He is a greater service than that of the father, and a teacher, a guru, represents to the disciple, to the seeker, the very Godhead, the very divinity to which he aspires. Whatever may be the perfections and the imperfections of the teacher from the human level, the disciple opens to the divine part in the teacher when he accepts him as the guru. He is not fascinated by the human side. He is not attracted or bound to the human side. 
it is something divine in the teacher, something with which the soul of the disciple has affinity that attracts him. And the link is between the teacher, the divine part of the teacher, and the soul of the disciple. Through this central part, the divine knowledge, the divine reality to which one aspires emanates. It pours upon the disciple. When the teacher is satisfied that this disciple, that this seeker is intended to be his disciple, that he is the intended by the divine to be his channel to reach the seeker, he decides in which line of yoga, in which line of spiritual effort is to be initiated. He observes the seeker, his nature, his evolutionary development so far, his aspiration, the direction of his soul, and chooses the precise line that he is to, he is to be initiated into. This initiation, again, is a highly fascinating subject, and there are as many as sixteen modes of initiation. It is not necessary for our purpose to go into these diverse modes. All that I want you to understand that there is not one way of initiation. The traditional way familiarized in India, of the teacher whispering some mantra or some word into the ear of the disciple is only one way. There are many other ways. The teacher just thinks of the disciple and an impact is made on the disciple. Something of the spiritual dynamism of the teacher impinges upon him and sets going a motor, spiritual motor in his heart. Or he looks and in the very sight a contact is made. Or he touches him in some part. There is a physical transmission and so on. There are innumerable methods which are open to the spiritual teacher. When people ask me in person or through correspondence, how are we to be sure that the mother has accepted us as her disciples? She has not given us any mantra. She has not touched us and said, you are initiated. <coughs> I am obliged to tell them that hers is not the usual traditional way. She has many ways of initiating, of accepting the disciple, seeker as a disciple. But one thing that she has said, 
that is when you accept her as your teacher take it that automatically you are accepted by her as a disciple the onus is upon the seeker the sincerity with which he accepts her decides the depth to which his discipleship stands now by whatever means the teacher accepts the seeker as his disciple is graphically described in the mystic tradition of india that when a seeker is accepted the teacher takes him into his own being he enters into him forms a fetus as it were stays in his womb for full 3 days three is a significant figure and after 3 days when the spiritual child is born the very gods are present to greet the newcomer the past birth human birth is left behind and he is born to a new life this is the role of the teacher to give a new birth to the disciple all knowledge that you get in books that you have acquired by your own effort the book knowledge the mental knowledge is enlivened by the touch of the teacher what is not relevant what is confusing it gets clear gets eliminated and the knowledge that is already there acquires a full life and from the body of the teacher there is a continuous there is a continuous charge of illumination at different points of your being <coughs> pouring flames of knowledge the teacher shirvindo describes does not arrogate to himself a superior position demanding obedience from the disciple an ideal teacher is one who does not dictate there is his teaching there is his example that he is the embodying the ideal which you seek to realize he is there in concrete form that itself is a great encouragement a standing power to inspire the disciple there is besides his continuous influence known and unknown to the disciple there is an incessant radiation of the spiritual vibrations of the teacher falling upon all in his surroundings creating an effortless atmosphere of progress of growth towards the ideal that is the knowledge there is the teacher third it will not do 
to read and stay in the presence of the Guru, one has to make an effort. There is a huge controversy among the learned people as to what what is the role of personal effort and what the role of grace. <coughs> is it grace that achieves or effort? Is it not true that the ultimate sanction has to come from above? Is it not true that you can't storm the gates of heaven by your zeal? After all, human zeal, is it not an effervescence? That is one stamp. The other is, the grace is there always. The grace is pouring. But there must be somebody, there must be something done at our level to receive the grace. There is a downpour of rain, but the soil has to be ready. It has to be made ready, the land has to be dug, the weeds to be removed, and things kept ready, the seed must be there. So, from the human side, the preparation is indispensable. This controversy is never solved satisfactorily at the academic level, because they make the mistake of looking upon effort and grace as two contradictory, two <coughs> unconnected truths. When once, long ago, the mother was asked what answer she had to say to this question, she said, grace and effort are two ends of the same truth. Because there is grace, one is impelled to do the effort. One is impelled to think of higher things. One is inspired to strive for higher things because there is an impulsion from grace. And because there is effort from here, the grace responds more and more. Both are interconnected. If, she, Mother said, I do not quote her exact words, but she said in substance, Without effort, things remain stagnant. Without grace, things remain unfruitful. Both, there is an interaction <coughs> of both effort and grace. And what is the effort that man is called upon to put in? It is the effort of aspiration. Aspiration for the higher truth, rejection, rejection of all that is contrary to the truth, that stands in the way of realizing the truth, and surrender, surrender of oneself to the higher truth, embodied, either embodied in the teacher or felt by you on some heights or depths of your being. It is a surrender to a divine power, whether in human form or not. This triple labor of aspiration, 
rejection and surrender. This triple labor of aspiration, rejection and surrender, the effort constitute the personal and the human effort. But human effort with all sincerity is not going to achieve things in a day, nor is the grace going to perform miracles every day? In fact, there are no miracles. What appears as a miracle, you can be sure, it is the fine result of a long and long preparation that has gone on before, either in this birth or the previous, last or more. There is the instrumentality of time. We are in a world, in the universe, governed by space and time. And time is a great determinant. There is an intelligence in time, behind time, a consciousness. It knows the precise hour when you are ready for the realization. One shall not grudge time to achieve a result which for which evolutionary nature, unaided by human effort and divine grace, would take millions of years. Time shall not be grudged. One has to know how to wait. As the mother has said somewhere, how to know how to wait is to put time on your side. Time is your friend. Time is an obstruction. It all depends upon your approach. If you function from the level of your ego, that you are doing everything, that by your effort, your knowledge, your dynamism, you are going to achieve, time comes in your way and asks you to test your claim at every step. Were you to surrender yourself to a higher force, to the divine Shakti, to the divine puissance, forget yourself or as they put it, die to yourself. Detach yourself from the ego and let yourself be carried as a surrendered child by the Divine Mother. Time is a friend. Time goes so quick, time is so helpful that the time is a hastener. However, the ideal attitude for the seeker is, as Sri Aurobindo has declared, in more than one place, not only in the synthesis, to have the patience as if 
the whole eternity is there before you but at the same time to summon marshal all the energies that you have with the speed and the tempo as if you have to achieve your goal the next moment can be formulated this way is it always necessary to have a physical guru i would answer that when it when it concerns a living teaching a teaching that is fresh when the teacher is alive physically or his influence and force are still dynamic on earth one can always start by reading his books by reading his world it is only if one does not follow does not correctly understand the message the directions in the book that a physical guru is advisable the books of sri aurobindo and the mother do not normally need the intercession of a physical guru they are so framed the knowledge is so laid out that the influence of the teacher is there in every word it is going to be like that for a long time if you accept this book synthesis of yoga as your teacher you automatically accept sri aurobindo as your teacher that particular case which is spoken of there is obviously a misreading and a misapplication i have on my table a remarkable letter written by a gentleman from america from one of the, from the states he has never come here he read some books received from calcutta his i think they are tomes letters and decided that he should practice this yoga things started happening he has written a letter to somebody in calcutta who could not uh, answer could not make out so that letter happened to be sent to me now that gentleman i'm just illustrating it what power a living world has the gentleman has not read all the books of sri aurobindo or the mother he does not i don't think he even knows the existence of the mother here seems to be a businessman he read the books and he said he sat down and started concentrating on the divine as love 
he excluded every other idea from his mind. For half an hour or so every day, he would think of the divine as love. Strangely, things started happening. He said, from the center of his heart, there was a continuous unrolling of waves of love. They started embracing all around the whole universe. They started going up. But it required certain application, concentration and devoting certain time, which obviously he could not spare. So he thought that was not his way. Then he thought the way of mind, the way of knowledge could be his. He read those relevant portions and started gathering his consciousness in the mind. Here too things started. He felt his consciousness separating itself from the mind, going up and up. He says, there are pillars of light. Things are pouring down. He felt a thrill, a continuous sense of delight. And when things are going this way, he felt he was being in, inundated and he would be lost. He got afraid and he kept the book. He stopped the experience and he said, am I doing the right thing? What am I to do if I die in this? Now, this sort of thing can only happen. It is the right, it is the right moment. The gentleman has mistaken things. He was on the verge of a capital experience when the fear has come in. And this fear of death, of loss, is really the fear of the ego. This has happened many times here in the ashram. Sri Aurobindo himself has spoken it in his conversations. He said one gentleman came to him in the evening when he was sitting, long before he retired, and he said, I want to meditate. Thoughts disturb me, but I thought should not disturb me. Sri Aurobindo said, very well, sit down and asked him to close his eyes. Things started happening again. Mind became blank, quiet. There was a rock of peace settling in. No movement. Suddenly the man shouted, I am dying. And Sherinder says, I was not patient in those days and uh, I had to let him lose that remarkable experience. Now this shows that there is a dynamic power in these books which one can follow. He has not read fully. That is why he let go that experience. Of course, I have written to him explaining matters that he should not be afraid. He should let himself be carried by the divine force that is claiming him. So it is not always necessary to accept a physical guru unless one feels one's limitations to grasp and to follow. In the section on time, there's one sentence that I found confusing. It says, Time is a field of circumstances and forces 
needing and working out a resultant progression whose course it measures. It, yes. it, it seems to represent time in two different aspects. And I'm very interested in what it seems to be saying in the first thing. Time is a field of circumstances and forces meeting and working out a resultant progression. Could you speak about yes. that? This earth, which is the field of manifestation, is really a field of the clash, the friction, and the working out of innumerable possibilities that have been released into action. Manifestation means there are a million possibilities in the bosom of the infinite. All of them are released. They clash. Each one tries to realize itself as if it alone exists. And out of this clash of possibilities, working together at certain junctures of certain possibilities, the result emerges. That is why one can never predict on earth that a particular result will happen at a particular time. Because the working of various possibilities, possibilities that are not patent but that are latent, is always there. And time is the background across which all these possibilities are turning, revolving, clashing and working out some result. Circumstance is one part, one feature of this situation. Circumstance is one juncture in the realization of certain possibilities. Between the struggle of possibilities and the realization of an actuality, there is time. There is a lapse of time. Time measures that. And all this work of the clash of possibilities is directed from within with a view to ensure the evolutionary progress of all that is involved in this manifestation. Evolution itself is a result of struggle. There are forces, there are possibilities that help possibilities that oppose, there is always a friction. Human nature, being what it is, gives enough scope for this clash. Time is the measurer. Time observes. Time contains. There are no such clash and working of possibilities on the higher plane. It is here in the field of evolution that the possibilities are deliberately released for working themselves into actualities. There are million casualties. Only a few possibilities succeed in realizing themselves. Could you say that these forces themselves as they interact are time created? No, no. The forces that interact, all are not simple forces. Many 
are presided over by certain beings from the subtler planes. They are anterior to time. Time and space of which he speaks relate to the earth field. Other levels have their own time, have their own space. But here he is speaking only of the earth field. And these possibilities are anterior. Man is not of one piece. Man lives simultaneously on different levels of his being. Day-to-day -day effort, living at the moment, living in the mo moment and the movement, not concerned with the next moment, that has to be on the dynamic and the working level. But on the contemplative level, which can be simultaneously active, one has to create the mental atmosphere, the mental climate for transformation, for change, to think what the change is going to be, what it expects of me, what is likely to be demanded of me in future. So that way the mind has to be active in a healthy direction, giving a constant lead to that practical part which is concerned with the moment-to-moment -moment effectuation of the idea. One has to do both. One has to act, one has to aspire, one has to feel, one has to plan and think, and one has to be absolutely detached and passive. All these have to be done simultaneously. Man is a multiple being, and to be multiply functioning is his very nature. I, what I find is that if, uh, if I start thinking about transformation, about the future, then those rare moments of silence in which you really sort of get into the moment, they just dissolve and suddenly you realize that you may be worrying about some change that's going to happen or anticipating it or hoping for it, and anxiety gets created. There is a question of striking a balance, keeping a balance between the different activities particular question that you propose, it is not really in the human hands to affect the transformation. The transformation of human nature is to be achieved by a force and a power greater than the human. What is demanded of man is an utter, unquestioning receptivity. Your responsibility ceases the moment you are truly surrendered, 
it is not your problem whether the transformation is going to be today or tomorrow or not at all at this moment. It is in greater hands than ours. They know the time. They know the hour. We shall not be found wanting when the moment comes. Our vision, our effort should be confined to keep ourselves ready, to keep the mind clarified, clear, no confusion, know exactly what transformation means, what it expects of you, and do it. To do anything beyond that is an indulgence in uh, mental acrobatics. There's a condition where someone in the mind has sense of understanding what should be done and another condition where they are actually in the engagement of having that happen to them or they are doing it but how can one know that it's not simply uh, in the mind alone that one is engaged projecting that that fact is taking place but it may not be it is a ticklish problem because the person who sees it in the mind on the mental level has the conviction that it is the way but whether another mind may not see it in another way and what is the right way that has to be tested empirically What the mind sees or feels need not be immediately true. The circumstances for its being realized may not be ready. So one has to wait, one has to watch, one has to compare and see if that sense of certitude which springs from the heart backs up the mental vision. A mental certainty won't do. A conviction and a self-evident certitude that comes here, that this is that and nothing else. When you have that, you can be convinced that what you are seeing is true and the right way for you to do. But there are conditions where someone can be out of synchronization by an imagining, let's call it, in the mental plane, that the thing is actually happening in the other areas of the being when it may very well not be. How to escape that from just leaving it on the mental <coughs> I understand. There is what is called in yoga a purely mental formation. On that level, it is absolutely true. You feel it true. <coughs> but at the first touch of reality, concrete reality elsewhere, outside, it breaks down. So, all that is vivid, all that is concretely experienced in the mind need not be a truth. It can be a mental fabrication, mental formation. This particularly happens with those who have an imaginative turn of mind or 
given to certain grandiloquent dreamings, stress of ego, the mind weaves, takes up certain ideas, desires, and weaves certain patterns. All that can be said in these matters is robust common sense has to be the barometer in most mental experience. A genuine spiritual experience does not need any barometer, it is self-evident. But a mental experience, as long as it remains a mental experience, however brilliant it may be, it has to be subjected to the canons of common sense and then only verified and accepted. Uh, when one discovers the inner certitude you spoke of, this inner authority, should one still obey any external authority, like books, for instance? If one can be sure, that it is not a mental formation, that it is not an egoistic projection, but if that is the voice of the inner true soul, that should be given more precedence over, that should be given precedence over the written word. If you are fortunate to have a teacher, to have a guru, this, such matters are to be referred to the guru and the guidance sought. But a written word can never be the final thing. 